We are born free. And we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Finding Freedom right here on the Lions of Liberty Podcast Network. And today I have an awesome guest. We're going to be talking about a really interesting and super important topic. Um, I'll introduce my guest in just a moment here. Before I do that, just want to remind you, if you enjoy this show, if you like the show, especially if you've been listening for a long time to this show, Finding Freedom, or to Brian's show on Wednesday's Mean Age Daydream, or even to our Friday show, Memoirs, please be sure that you're number one subscribed to the podcast. And also, go ahead and join the Lions of Liberty Pride, where you can get more content, discounts on merchandise, more access, things like that. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty or lionsofliberty.locals.com. So without any further delay, let's get into today's show and I'll introduce today's guest. My guest today is Kristen Van Uden. And Kristen is a researcher. She's researched Catholics who have survived totalitarianism in the 20th century. Um, She is especially interested in pursuing uh, this subject through the histographies, can't say that word, of martyrdom, memory studies, and dissident literature. Her first book is called When the Sickle Swings, Stories of Catholics Who Survived Communist Oppression. And it'll be published very soon here, um, I think within the next week here. So pretty exciting times. Kristen, welcome to Finding Freedom. Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me. Well, great to have you on the show. And this is definitely a topic, um, especially with uh, you know the focus on communism that my audience is going to be um, zeroed in on and is, I think, really going to enjoy. Um, I myself, I'm, I'm not a Catholic. I'm, I'm a Christian, um, but really interested to hear some of these stories um, because I know that you know, so much in, you know, at least, you know, my faith journey and a lot of other people's were able to really take a lot away from and really be inspired by hearing how others who've dealt with persecution and dealt with um, really the state um, coming down against the religion, um, that really a lot of the time ends up working in the opposite direction of, uh, of their intention. So we'll get into some of these stories in, in a few moments here. Before we do that, if you could just share some background on yourself uh, so my audience can get to know you better. Sure. So I, as mentioned in my bio, have been working on this project really since college. I have always been interested in the victims and survivors of totalitarian regimes and studied the 20th century and just really honed in on that. It's just the bloodiest and most horrifying, but also the one that produces these stories of resilience. So I majored in history and minored in Russian and then went to grad school and studied Soviet propaganda. And I started taking down these stories my senior year of undergrad. I did an independent study where I collected oral histories of Catholics who had 
either escaped or survived communism. And really the majority of these were taken down in the past two years as I prepared to write this book. But I think when I think about the through line of what interests me about this, it's really this idea of martyrdom because as you know, all Christians are called to a certain degree of martyrdom, be that Mm -hmm. red or white, we all have to sacrifice something to keep the faith. And while many people under communism did have to pay the ultimate price and sacrifice their lives for their faith, many others just suffered as one lady that I interviewed call it death by a thousand cuts through this white martyrdom, whether that be being unable to get a job because an informant spotted you going to church on Sundays or Mm -hmm. being shut down for a promotion, not able to get into the school of your choice, losing friends, ostracization, things like this that are sort of a a softer but no less painful in in the long run um, sort of amalgamation of all of these many little sufferings that provide many opportunities and temptations to give up. But ultimately, it's the strength to pull through that. And so these stories are also, in studying history, I always was drawn to personal stories and to biographies. So I know that academics love to hate on the genre of biographies, but they're still my favorite. (laughs) You can get really lost in the statistics and, and sort of these macro Uh, more big picture analyses. So I love to zero in on individual narratives. Uh, Another word about sources is that in the 20th century, since it it is still so recent and um, a lot of these sources and and experiences happened under such duress, there Mm -hmm. is kind of a lack of documentary evidence too. So much of what I relied on is these eyewitness testimonies and their memories. So I have always felt that it's important to record these before it's too late, because while communism is still in the collective consciousness, it won't be for very much longer. There are still communist regimes, but since the fall of the Soviet Union, the world has kind of moved on. And so I really hope to take down these stories before they're lost forever. Yeah, and I think that the eyewitness aspect of it is extremely powerful. And I hope you're right about communism fading away here. I know there's active communist groups in the in the U.S. on college campuses, so um, they're they're still still hanging on by a thread. Um, oh yeah, they're still they're still around. But you when you see people who walk around wearing Che Guevara T-shirts, clearly the truth of communism has escaped the yeah. <laughs> the collective memory. So. Uh, it's the forgetting history and destined to repeat it in real time. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so let's kind of start, just zoom out um, to a to a wide view here and just um, why specifically communism is so dangerous to Christians. So communism basically replaces the role of God with that of the state. Many people make the mistake of believing that it's purely an economic or political program. And while these elements are important and Mm -hmm. arguments can be made uh, at that level, ultimately what I have discovered and what I believe to be true is that it is in its truest form a pseudo-religion. We see this most obviously with the cults of personality of the communist leaders. We, I mean, Nicolae Ceausescu, I cover Romania in the book, would rant on the airwaves for three to four hours per day and just completely monopolize public opinion and whether out of fear or out of some sort of genuine impulse to uh, bow to a leader. 
this cult of personality grew. Stalin's is obvious, a very obvious example. And this has ideological underpinnings that are important to understand. So one of the books that I relied upon for researching the ideological elements of communism was Father Vincent Michelli's Gods of Atheism, in which he kind of studies the these godfather figures of modern atheism, because we tend to think that atheism is kind of the default state of humans, because you go out, especially in college campuses, and it's like, oh, everyone's agnostic or everyone mm-hmm. is spiritual but not religious. <laughs> and you kind of tend to think, oh, this is the starting point and religion is, is something odd. But in fact, it is actually the opposite. Atheism as we know it as this sort of militant, scientific, a posteriori, materialist movement mm-hmm. is quite new and is really a product of the last two centuries. So Marx and Engels are covered in that book, of course, people like um, Darwin and Nietzsche. And one of his essential points was that atheism is not, as it purports to be, the absence of worship, but rather the worship of idols, because humans have built into our souls this innate desire for God, to be united Mm -hmm. with God, to worship God. It's just our disposition. We can't flee from that. We can only replace God with something else. So whether that be money or success or fame, that can all, those can all take the place of God as an idol, but also an ideological totalizing mentality. And that is what communism really provided for the people. It promises a worldly utopia, which is Really, when you think about it, a very seductive and attractive message, uh, a world with all equality and no deprivation, uh, progress and um, complete lack of strife is, you know, of course, something we all would want. But as Christians, we know that we are still in a fallen world and that if it sounds too good to be true, it is probably too good to be true. Uh, We store up our treasures for heaven and know that this world will pass away ultimately. So that's the central ideological shift that communism takes. And there's various examples um, that I cover in the book that really show this playing out um, Mm -hmm. in the way that the regime treats people of faith. But that's kind of the ideological leap you have to make in order for any of this to happen. Yeah, I think, you know, that that's a really important aspect to point out, you know, about communism, how it, it does replace God um, in a way or tries to. It doesn't actually replace God. Um, that, that's, that's why it doesn't work. But it's like like you said, the the need for worship, the need to worship God, it's, it's something we're born with. It's in our it's in our soul. It's in, it's in our being. And, you know, even outside of communism, even in the, the world today on college campuses, throughout corporate corporate America, whatever, um, that worship, if people aren't Christians, if, if they aren't practicing Christians, if they aren't going to church, reading their Bible, um, they're just going to replace that with something else, with another idol, with, you know, with the, the woke culture, with climate change, with something. They're going to find something um, something else to worship. So I think that's a, that's a really important point. I just wanted to highlight again. Um, some really interesting little little story I saw. I forget. I guess it was in the the chapter on Cuba um, at the at the beginning of it. We were talking about how what they did in Cuba is they would go around and you know to tell the children, um, okay, now say a prayer for uh, you know God to give you a piece of candy, and of course you know, no candy would show up in their hands, and then mm-hmm. they would say, okay, well now ask uh, 
Fidel Castro for a piece of candy. And then they would and then come around to give candy to each yep. kid. But it's so, I mean, it's so crazy that we still see that. We see that with our government today with, you know, the, these handouts and these giveaways. And look, the government is here to, to help you. Don't, don't yes. look your God for help. It's really exactly. Incredible. And I, I opened that chapter with that little vignette because I just think it's mm-hmm. so telling of the communist ideology and almost mm-hmm. that they're saying the quiet part out loud that, yes, yeah. you have declared God dead and the state to be your sole arbiter of both your human rights and your prosperity. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it's exactly. They're, saying, they're they're not even trying to hide what, what they're yes. doing. Um, it's just pretty pretty absurd, really. Um, so I just wanted to, if you wouldn't mind sharing, you know, maybe starting with with the the segment on Cuba. Just you know, I don't want you to go through every every story, but maybe something that you know really really sticks out to you that that you wouldn't mind sharing for my audience. Um, one of those eyewitness accounts from uh, from the book. Sure. So one thing, as we're talking on the theme of communism ultimately being sort of the pseudo-religion, a replacement religion, another example of that that came up in several interviews was this phenomenon in the prisons. So in the political prisons, there were a series of prisoners known as the plantados, uh, coming from the word for planted or firm, who refused to budge. They refused to submit to re-education or to apostatize or anything. And were thus treated worse by the guards because of this. And many, unfortunately, were executed and went to their deaths yelling, Viva Cristo Rey, and just that ultimate witness to the ultimate moment. But also on the other side of that, there were some people who did succumb to the communist either coercion within the camp or the mind games that they played. And one story just has stuck with me this entire time. And That is of these sadistic guards who would try to get someone to give up their faith and to perform some actions. So we've seen this from time immemorial in the church with the Roman martyrs. They were asked to pinch a grain of incense to the pagan gods. And then the Japanese martyrs were told to step on the icon. And so just this seemingly small action, but that amounts to this betrayal. So, of course, the martyrs would refuse to do this. And in the prisons, this took on the the form of the guards asking them to apostatize and then oh we'll free you then and you can go to confession and it will be fine you can say or sorry you can make reparation to god and all will be well and of course this was a lie so anyone who took the bait and took them up on their promise they would then shoot and gloat and say now you're going to hell and we stole your soul And of course, only God will judge the souls in that moment. They were under Mm -hmm. so much duress. But it just shows that for a regime that is purportedly just materialist and atheist in the sense that they believe religion is backwards and of poor social value, to have that just cruelty and hatred towards someone living their faith in a way Mm -hmm. that is not and could not be conceived as a threat to the regime in any way other than nonconformist and that again was one of those moments where they are mask off, revealing this uh, sort of inverted demonic nature of of this ideology. Yeah, really. Say, yeah, demonic, satanic, um, really shows the true colors of uh, you know what what we're up against through that story. And yeah, sure. So they're saying that that they don't believe you know in in a soul. They don't they don't believe in. Uh, 
in what Christians believe, don't believe in Jesus, I'm sure. But still, they're saying that they, they stole a soul, which doesn't, yes. doesn't really uh, exactly. mesh there. <laughs> like, which one is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't, you can't have it both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to ask you about, um, in your section on uh, Czechoslovakia, um, how there was, a, there was a young student and some, uh, some secret priests and, and bishops that orchestrated a uh, velvet revolution. Um, could, yes. could you talk about what, what that was and how that came about? Sure. So this gentleman that I interviewed, his name was Frantisek Mikloshko, and he was a student at the time of these events. He got involved with what's known as the underground church, which I'll go into in a second, and actually decided to stay in Czechoslovakia, helped orchestrate what's known as the Velvet Revolution, can also be translated as the Gentle Revolution, which is the series of peaceful protests that ultimately brought about the fall of communism, the abdication of the communist president, and the election of their their democratic assembly. And he is now a pretty prominent Slovak politician who has been working since the collapse to rebuild his country in um, this democratic era. So really full circle with his story. But the, the, the situation of the church under communism everywhere is quite interesting and complicated because in addition to the ideological opposition that communism has towards faith, the Catholic Church has this additional problem in that it is technically a sovereign state with the Vatican as a sovereign state with the Pope. And so a charge that you will often see levied against Catholics is that of Vatican agent or fifth columnist for a foreign Western power. And Mm -hmm. of course, this was ridiculous. But one of the tactics taken was to completely cut off communication between the priests and their hierarchy in Rome. So that sort of lifeblood of apostolic succession and um, the typical operations of the church was basically brought to a halt. Pope Pius XII in 1949 issued what are called the secret mandates. And these were these provisions that allowed for the life of the church to continue even without that direct contact with the Vatican and turned out to be a real lifesaver in Czechoslovakia. Basically, this gave carte blanche permission to bishops under the Iron Curtain to ordain priests and consecrate bishops without going through the usual lengthy processes. So they were able to do this in secret. And one of the bishops that Miklosko worked with was, um, his name was Jan Chrysostom Koretz, and he became a cardinal under John Paul II, actually. And I have a picture in the book of his apartment during one of the operations of the underground church where he would actually, he kind of created this apparatus for communication that was like basically like an ear trumpet. So one person would speak in one end, somebody would listen on the other side, sitting in the same room together. But this was because he knew his apartment was likely bugged by the secret police and they just couldn't speak out loud, even in code. They were not willing to take that risk. Hmm. (laughs) Um, The priests who were secret priests had to be very careful about their identity. And so many of them had to work full-time jobs and minister the sacraments on their off time in the evening. So Bishop Koritz worked in a factory for a while and they were under imminent threat. So um, many, and especially the bishops were targeted, of course, strike the shepherd and the sheep shall scatter. So 
they literally went underground. And this is why I use the metaphorical or the meta, yeah, metaphorical term of catacombs of Bratislava that they would meet secretly either in apartments or in other public spaces since the, the state had mainly seized control of the church properties at that point and just continued to live the basic life of the sacraments, something that we take for granted, the ability to go to church on Sundays, they really had to go to these great lengths just to be able to maintain that. Yeah. Just, I mean, just, just think about the tremendous risk, you know, that, that, that they're taking on to have these leadership positions and, you know, ha- having the heart to serve, um, to mm-hmm. give, you know, th- those in the community, even like you said, the opportunity to uh to go to church and mm-hmm. it's definitely something that we uh that we do take for granted here in the uh in the US for sure so to uh to follow up on on that one um I did want to ask you about so th- there was no, there's another story in the book of a uh, a Czech teacher who refused to join the uh the communist party which yep. ends up in a showdown with a soviet tank yes <laughs> <laughs> Yes, this is Olga. She has an amazing story. And she is one who basically communism colored her life from the time she was a child. So she would recount when she was little going to mass and her parents would tell her and her sister that they had to keep their eyes down, not look around at the congregation, don't make eye contact with the priest because if and when you were hauled before the STB, state security, you could with a clear conscience say, I don't know who else was there. I can't inform on anyone. Mm -hmm. And so she grew up with this understanding of how dangerous communism was for the church. So she was never really fooled by the propaganda and as early as elementary school refused to join the young pioneers, which was sort of the communist youth group Um, one of those groups that was somewhat like the Boy Scouts in America Mm -hmm. um, and would provide basically the only social scene for for people of that age. So it was a real social ostracization from the beginning to refuse to join this. Things got harder as she got older and continued to refuse to join communist organizations. So, um, of course, admission into college was difficult. Um, Requests to study abroad and... uh, She almost didn't graduate because of this, but was able to have a neighbor advocate for her. Um, And then she got a job as a teacher. And even then, of course, there were these teachers unions that were loyal to the party. They tried to force her to join another youth group for older uh, young adults. And she refused on the pretense that she was too old. She was like 30 at that point. And they said, oh, no, you can join up until the age of 35. So just at every turn, all of this constant social pressure. She still refused. One day, the principal at her school came up to her and told her she could no longer wear the cross necklace that she wore every day. And she had to take it off. It was not allowed at at this public building, at the public school. And I think she transferred schools after that and continued to meet with resistance at every turn. And ultimately, she chose to emigrate to the United States. Um, She had a sister who had fled Czechoslovakia to Canada by Mm -hmm. that point. And she talks about her first encounter with working at an American school and how she was able to just be free and open about her faith there and just what a complete disparity that was night and day between um, the life she had grown up with. 
Yeah, well, I, uh, there are some school districts in America where you can't be that open with your face today, unfortunately. Um, yes, yes. <laughs> and then, oh, I forgot to talk about the tank. That's probably the part you wanted to get to <laughs> so, um, before she fled. So in, as, as listeners may be familiar, in 1968, there was a series of reforms under a new president called Alexander Dubček in Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. known as the Prague Spring. So things started to loosen up a bit. Restrictions were lifted. Everyone was happy and there's just just this jovial atmosphere and bishops actually started to return from prisons so this was a period of great hope and Mm -hmm. then it was squashed by the soviet invasion they could see a communist country because czechoslovakia was independent from the soviet union getting out of hand and stepped in and just reinstated this iron fist And so Soviet tanks were rolling all across cities and she was in the Czech city of Brno. And this was kind of a moment of all this bottled up emotion and repression under the system for so long, just coming to a head. And so one of the Russian tanks was sort of surrounded by a crowd and there were some communist true believers from the party there from her town who were trying to kind of massage the ego of the soldier and say, oh, there's no revolution here. You don't, we've got this under control. You can go home. And she uh, deprived them of all of those lies by just going off and just yelling at this Russian soldier and telling him he was illegally here, occupying her city, needs to go home. This is her land. And the gun of the tank was pointed directly at her and the crowd that had been there just a few minutes before completely dispersed. So it was her, one woman standing against the might of the Soviet army. Luckily, a neighbor talked her down off the ledge and was able to pull her away at that moment. But it could have ended quite differently. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Unfortunately, violence was used against protesters during this in- entire period and this invasion specifically. So she she talks about this moment as kind of obviously this moment of rupture, but also of even if, though she was obviously powerless against this tank and against the army, she said what she believed. She was no longer in hiding. And that to her constituted a victory that she had not really been able to gain at mm-hmm. that level before. Just so amazing. Um, you know, I'm curious with, with these eyewitness interviews that you've been able to, to conduct, you know, just such incredible stories, you know, people just entirely relying on their faith. And I'm just curious when, when you're hearing these stories, when you're conducting these interviews and documenting them, um, you know, what, what sort of, you know, personal impact or have they had a personal impact on you? I mean, just seeing what these individuals have been able to overcome and get to the other side. Oh, absolutely. And they've definitely convicted me to be more bold about the faith in the public Mm -hmm. sphere. And I know that's a very difficult, precarious, delicate balance to strike with uh, all sorts of reprisals and um, social pressures that can happen. Mm -hmm. But they, yeah, just their, their complete boldness and just trusting in God ultimately is what it comes down to. They were not concerned with impressing man. They knew that they would ultimately be judged by God. And I go into this a bit actually at the end of the book with the symbology of the hammer and sickle and um, the, the title and where this comes from. So when the sickle swings is adapted from Joel 3.13, swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. And I was contemplating this 
communist iconography of the hammer and sickle. And of course, this in their mindset stands for the hammer, the proletariat that worked in the factories, so the industrial proletariat, and then the sickle, the agrarian proletariat, the farmers, Mm. the former serfs. So these working classes were the ones that they represented and were going to advocate for, supposedly. And then I thought of how the sickle is often portrayed in the Bible as separating the wheat from the chaff. The moment of harvest is this moment Mm. where the crops are cut down and then brought to judgment. And it clicked for me that the hammer and sickle go together in that way too, is that when you are cut down in this life, you are brought before the throne of God for judgment. And the hammer is something that we often associate with judgment and justice. And so I just thought it was the supreme irony that while communist states really pervert the sense of justice and set up you know, these show trials and these false laws that derive zero authority from God because they're evil um, and wrong, they are co-opting this imagery that ultimately has Christian origins and that in the next life, um, will it, their de- definitions will pass away and these true definitions will come clear again. Right. No, that, that's, uh, that, that's powerful. And it just speaks again to kind of what, you know, I was talking about at the beginning where, you know, the intentions of these regimes where, and you were, you were talking about this with the one story where, where they took away, uh, they didn't allow the the teacher to, to wear her cross anymore. Um, and just, just knowing, you know, these regimes understanding the level of faith, obviously, because they're trying to stamp it out, but no matter what they try, um, they're, they're unable to. And it's just such a such a testament um, to the the faith of these individuals. R- really incredible mm-hmm. stuff. Um, I'm curious what what kind of well the book's not out yet, but have you been able to at least get get a get a response or a sense for a response to the book from from anyone, either positive or or negative? Yeah, so I've had quite a few interviews, and people are generally kind of shocked that. And and again, I think this part of my motivation in writing this was to correct the record of, uh, as you keep alluding to our failed American education system Mm -hmm. that does not really fill in the gaps and does not teach the true horrors of communism. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day who told me they had no idea that Mao Zedong had killed over 50 million people in his great leap forward in China. And like, we have a duty to know these things of mass death on that level is a problem is everyone's problem. Not mm-hmm. it doesn't matter where you live. Um, this all happened within the past 100 years. And so <clears throat> this, I think people are kind of, it's, it's a wake up call for a lot of people. And it's, I think it's spurring more research because people that I talk to go on to read. And I actually include um, some smaller suggested reading lists at the back of each chapter. And, and a bit of a selected bibliography at the end, including full length memoirs of people who survived communism um, with God in Russia by a priest who was actually American and went to the Soviet Union to evangelize is a really popular one. So it's, uh, it's, it's been a positive reaction and one just kind of, of oh, I should have known that. <laughs> and, um, shock and awe in the sense that they're, they're if they, if they are angry, it's that, this is something that was they weren't aware of before. And 
um, yeah, just kind of a, an enthusiasm to find out more. It just the the amount of of death caused by these communist regimes, and you pointed out Mao, which was um, fifty million, I think you said. And there's one you know part in the book where you cite the the victims of communism memorial foundation estimate that over um 100 million people have been murdered by communist regimes worldwide which very well might be low because i think the soviet regime was well north of 20 million I, the estimates i think are very pretty pretty greatly but just it's 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 crazy that we are not educated on this in um, public schools growing up. It's just kind of, kind of glossed over. And, mm-hmm. and in so much as, as we talked about earlier, there's still, you know, communist groups on college campuses saying that, well, we just haven't tried to implement communism hard enough that when we have, and it'll, <laughs> yeah. it'll work the next time. It's really yeah, I think it's kind of a, a triumph of communist propaganda, obviously that this has happened. It's not just an accident. I would, mm-hmm. I would assume, um, and I mean, we've been told, for, we've been warned for years about communist infiltration, even within the West. So taking this sort of long game approach, um, I, I refer to in the book, I think the there's a Catholic writer named Bella Dodd, who was a former communist agent who actually placed communist sympathizers in the seminaries in the U.S., and then she had this big moment of conversion um, under the influence of Bishop Fulton Sheen, um, whose cause for sainthood is, is taken up right now. And she admitted to all of this. And it just goes to show this uh, really insidious infiltration that was happening and really at all levels, even in, in countries where there was no state sanctioned backing for this sort of thing. Um, it's an ideological colonization and, uh, as, as you say, by no means something that's over. Yeah. And, and you talked about the infiltration aspect there and you kind of lay out in the, in the, uh, beginning part of the book, the, the blueprint for oppression that communist regimes yes. have, which I think is important to point out, um, outlawing public worship, rounding up clergy, seizing and repurposing church property, controlling the, 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 uh, lady. And then what was the last one? Um, infiltration so yeah yes. <laughs> yes and this happens i think uh a really apt analog today is the secret church in china versus the national church in china which actually occurred to a lesser degree in czechoslovakia which i go into in the book the after the state seized church properties it set up this front this facade mm-hmm. this Potemkin village church known as the national church and about 11% of priests, unfortunately, defected uh, to this national church and were working on behalf of the state. And the majority, luckily, remained faithful to the Vatican and faithful to the true Catholic faith and refused to allow the state to have any interference. And for that, of course, they were persecuted, martyred, went underground. And that's um, the underground mm-hmm. church, which I talk about. So... Today in China, the same thing is happening where the state has a role in appointing these bishops. And this is just completely against Catholic teaching. And again, just another manifestation of this principle that the state can choose what is really in the hands of God. Right. Trying to trying to co-opt religion, trying to co-opt God, which which yeah. is not, not going to work for them. Um, yeah. So just wanted to ask you one last question here. So of, of you know this this whole experience of you know 
pulling um, all this information together with all these eyewitness accounts and, and writing this book. Um, is there anything, any aspect or any really important um, takeaway that you'd like to share with my audience that we haven't talked about yet, or maybe just something that you'd like to reinforce that we've already discussed? Yeah, I would say, let's see, the importance of winning the battle in your own mind, first and foremost. Mm. So one of the more triumphant moments of the book is this Velvet Revolution, where uh, what started as prayer protests, essentially, kind of snowballed into a democratic movement that overthrew communism in the country. And while that is a very obvious sign of God's hands in the fate of human affairs, ultimately, even without that, Christians can still win the victory, and that is to preserve your own soul and your own mind. So one story from back in Romania under the Ceausescu regime, as I mentioned, that comes to mind is when he was going on his daily rants, um, a family that I interviewed would actually either turn off the TV, turn the volume low and pray the rosary or something Mm. together as a family and just refuse to let that in. Because again, we think we could all resist, but when you're in this onslaught of propaganda, it's sometimes easy unless you watch yourself to start to think that way or to, to let it kind of assault your own mind. So this, victory to save your own soul and to bolster your family and your church community around you was enough. And we like to think of these dramatic moments of resistance as more important, but ultimately, as Jesus says, what is the point, uh, to paraphrase, (laughs) uh, to gain the whole world and lose your own soul. And that was ultimately the the main challenge is to make sure that they don't steal your soul like those guards in the prison were threatening to. And beyond that, you can trust that God will use you in whatever way he wants to. And that is necessary in order to defeat the cause here in this life. Yeah, that's, that's a great example. And I mean, Cutting off the uh, you know political speeches, of course you're you know as they say garbage in is garbage out. It's going to seep in somewhere, yeah. especially when you talk about you know exposing children to that type of uh, yeah. type of propaganda. So very very dangerous situation, and you know I think relatable to you know Christians today, even in the United States, there's propaganda in all different forms coming at you from all different directions, from social media to mainstream news to public schools as well. Um, There's lots of of different ways that, uh, you know, we're always under attack by the enemy. Mm -hmm. So um, Kristen, I I did want to give you a chance here before I let you go um, to share your plugs, your links, anything else you're working on. And of course, telling people where and how they can uh, get your book when it comes out. Sure thing. So the book officially comes out November 21st, so less than a week from today, which is exciting. But it is in the warehouse, so that's why I have a copy here. So if you order it now, pre-order, you'll be able to get it sooner. Uh, It's called When the Sickle Swings, Stories of Catholics Who Survived Communist Oppression, available at sophiainstitute.com. And it is quite short. You can see under 200 pages with pictures. So don't be intimidated by the dark subject matter. I think this would be an easy read for Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah, and I'll I'll just give another plug on top of that. Um, I've read some of it. I I plan on finishing the book. But if you like, you know, the show that I really, I used to do a show talking to, you know, criminals who've been through the system and sharing stories of injustice, Um, you know, 
there is something so powerful about eyewitness accounts and personal stories. So people who enjoy that aspect of my old show are definitely going to enjoy um, this book as well. So definitely check it out. And Kristen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, John. God bless. All right. Well, that um, is the end of the interview for today. Hopefully you enjoyed it um, as much as I enjoyed talking about this really, really important subject. So if you like what we're doing here at Finding Freedom and at Lions of Liberty, please, um, like I said at the top, consider joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. Helps us to keep this show going. And uh, also you get some some bonus content and some other great goodies from us. Um, I'll say I'll say this again. I've said it, you know, a bunch of times. If you're subscribed to our YouTube channel, we are shadow banned. We have like six thousand or some subscribers. So make sure that you also go back on YouTube and hit that bell at the top so you get notified when our videos go live. So we're also putting, you know, shorts, you know, little clips from uh, our interviews on there as well. So if you don't want to consume the whole episode on video. You can uh, watch that short and uh, and share it around to help us uh, share this message. So really appreciate everyone listening, and I will see everyone next week. In the meantime, always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. <laughs>